Today we're going to be going through the letter to the church of Philadelphia here in the middle of Revelation chapter 3. But before we start reading through that, there's a few things I want in our heads before we start unpacking the text itself. Friends, there is safety in the kingdom of God that nothing in this world can match or nothing in this world can take away. There is safety in the kingdom of God, and nothing in this world can overcome that or take that away from us. So an enduring church does not just find itself often cutting against the grain of what is normal in the world around us, but it more importantly finds itself founded upon an unshakable kingdom. We belong to Jesus Christ in the one kingdom in all of creation and history that cannot be shaken. And this is an encouragement to us as we press forward, as we walk through our lives. Why would we contend? Why would we endure for something that is false? Why would we pour our lives and time and effort into a kingdom that in the end will fail us? By the way, that is a description of the enemy's kingdom. It is false, and it will fail us. But there is a kingdom that will not, and our place in Jesus Christ is secure as the children of God. Let's remember again that the larger context of the book of Revelation is the unfolding of the triumph of God's power over the power of rebellion and sin and of the enemy himself. The enemy deceives. The enemy flexes every muscle that he has, We watch that through the rest of this book. But God will never be overpowered and God will never be outmaneuvered. So as we open the book of uh, Revelation, start reading the, the letter to the church at Philadelphia, we see that the church at Philadelphia is one of two churches of whom nothing negative is said. The church at Philadelphia and then the church at Smyrna are those two churches. Now, the Christians in the city of Philadelphia are facing some kind of opposition to their faith. We get a couple of details, but we don't get a lot. But we do know that they have kept God's word and they have shown what, again, this phrase, it shows up over and over again. They have shown patient endurance. And so much of what Christ has to say to this church is about the power of the kingdom of God and of their place in it and of our place in it. So the church of Philadelphia is going to help us see a few things. And the first is this. The church's power on earth is not the same as the power of the kingdom of God. This is really important for us. The church's power on earth is not the same as the power of the kingdom of God. Now, you and I are, and we should be, rightfully concerned with justice and injustice, righteousness and unrighteousness in the earthly power struggles, structures that you and I live in. And we pray about these things and we vote about these things and we work for righteousness and justice and integrity. And these are the things that we are called to do exactly because we are members of the kingdom of heaven. But the church doesn't always have access to earthly power, or it has very little access to earthly power. And oftentimes across cultures, across history, the church has no access to earthly power at all. But in the end, that's okay because you and I are learning what kingdom we belong to and what power in the kingdom of God actually means. 
And Christ is going to encourage this church. He's going to actually tell them, I know you don't have much power in this world, but here's what life is like in the kingdom of God. We're also going to see God's eternal protection of the church, his eternal protection of the church. This life brings all of us grief and loss and pain. It happens in different ways and to different degrees to all of us because this world is broken, because we are broken people, because the enemy really is at work inside of this world. And awful people, broken people, do broken things. But God's promise to his children is about his presence in this world with us and eternity with him being secure. This is God's promise to his children, even in the church of Philadelphia where they are facing some kind of actual opposition and persecution. So then we'll see this as well what it means to have the church's place in the kingdom of God, what that is like, what that means. This letter is going to use some really powerful imagery, some new imagery to us, as a matter of fact, in these letters to help us understand what it means to be a child of God for all of eternity. So let's begin reading the letter to the church at Philadelphia, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, and the letter goes like this. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a lot of beautiful and powerful stuff crammed into this letter to the book, to, 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 the, to the Christians who are in the city of Philadelphia. So Jesus introduces himself. He's done this inside of every letter. So the one who, so Christ takes certain sets of images to describe himself to this particular church. He says, the one who is holy, the holy one and the true one who holds the keys of David. So Jesus introduces himself as holy and as true. Now, the book of Revelation is loaded with the Old Testament. 
Um, sometimes it quotes the Old Testament, but more often than not, it's just full of the language and the imagery and the stories and the prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, to speak of God being holy is a common understanding of God in the Old Testament, that we understand Him as holy, we see Him as holy, we praise Him as holy. And it's a way of speaking of the perfection and the beauty of the character of God. Of any and every character trait that God has, it's all wrapped up together and becomes its glory because of the holiness of God. In fact, we have this dramatic moment when the prophet Isaiah is given his commission by God. It happens in Isaiah chapter 6. He's given an image of the throne room of God, and he sees these divine beings circling the throne of God. And this is what they do day and night. They sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is this God. So it's this amazing way of speaking of the character of God and the purity and the beauty and the righteousness of God. And Jesus takes that image and he places it upon himself. He says, I am the one who is holy. I am God himself. So the Holy One is speaking to you now, Christian. The Holy One, the one who is true, Christ introduces himself as. Now, this is not just in this moment, the kind of truth that we've talked about a few times through this study, where Jesus is the truth. Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 6 actually says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is obviously true about Jesus Christ. But this is Jesus as the true one, as in the trustworthy one, the faithful one, the loyal one, the way in which we would talk about someone who is a true friend. I will not let go of you. I will not give up on you. I will not forget about you. I am holy and I am the true one. And then he takes this really interesting image and again applies it to himself, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So this is clearly an image of power, that what Christ is going to do, opening or shutting, whatever it is, no one else has the power to do the opposite. No one can change the mind or the work or the power of Christ. As we've noticed throughout these letters, these introductions often have a touch point in chapter 1 where Jesus had revealed himself in all of his glory to John the Revelator. So we get kind of a touch point in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus says he is the one who holds the keys of death in Hades. Again, a symbol of his authority and power even over death itself. But this passage of Scripture goes all the way back to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 22, there's a kind of lived-out parable that is told using a particular individual. I believe his name was Eliakim, and he's given the key of David. And that key is, in the imagery of Isaiah chapter 22, it is the key that opens and shuts the door to the king's throne room. It's, it's access to the king. It's access to the room where the king is. So, foreshadowing the coming Messiah, Isaiah 22, verse 22, puts it like this. And I will place on his shoulder, using this individual to again foreshadow the Messiah, 
And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one shall open. Right? So Jesus is grabbing this image, and he pulls it right into himself. He says, this is the kind of authority and power that belongs to me and me alone. This is, friends, so what is this? In its broadest sense, what Jesus is talking about, about these keys and opening and shutting, is this is access to the kingdom of God. It's access to the kingdom of God in everything that it means. Salvation, access to the Father, right relationship with God, the healing and the transforming power of God inside of our lives. Being able to walk in the kingdom of God, the, the power and the value and the visions of the kingdom of God here and now, and this is access to the kingdom of God for all of eternity. This is what Jesus is speaking of. You see, the disciples understood this very early on, that only Jesus has this kind of power and no one else can take it away from him and no one else can take those promises away from the children of God either. The disciples saw this early. So early in the book of Acts, this is after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He spends some time with his disciples. He ascends into heaven. The disciples don't know quite what to do, but then the Holy Spirit falls on them. The church age begins, and they begin to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ right in the middle of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. They begin to face persecution. They keep being told, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. So here's part of what the disciples respond with in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. They say, and there is no salvation, there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the disciples say, do what you have to do. This is what we're going to do. And we're going to continue to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the one who addresses us. I'm the one who is holy. I'm the one who is true. And I am the one who holds the keys and all authority and all power. And I know your works. And Jesus says, so I have set before you an open door that nobody can shut. It's a call for us to walk through this open door. It is a reminder that the one who has authority that no one can surpass or change said, I've opened a door for you in the kingdom of God, in the moving forward of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there is no power on earth that can shut that door. It does not matter. Jesus even mentions this to the church at Philipp at, uh, in Philadelphia. It doesn't matter that they have very little power in earthly terms. Human rulers and human power structures do not control access to or the power of the kingdom of God. There is no piece of legislation. There is no executive order. There is no UN mandate that can overcome the power of the kingdom of God. So which do we belong to? Which do we belong to? The church at Philadelphia knew. The church at Philadelphia knew.
Now, human power structures may think that they can prevent the moving forward of the kingdom of God, silence the voice or the power, the saving power, the healing power of the kingdom of God. Human power structures often think that their ideology is the utopian replacement for the kingdom of God, but they are wrong about 50%. No, they're wrong 100% of the time. Come on, people. I know you're out there. They're wrong 100% of the time. So Jesus tells you and me, I've opened a door for you, and nobody, even if they think they can, nobody can shut this door. So despite whatever the politics were like in the city of Philadelphia, when this letter is written, Jesus says, I know your works. You did not deny me. You did not deny the name of Jesus Christ, and you have kept my word. Hang on to those images in this letter. You didn't deny my name. You claimed me in public, and then you kept my word. God is Christ is going to say, you kept my word, so I'm going to keep you as well. It's this beautiful play on imagery inside of this letter. But this is a great snapshot of the church enduring. Do we rely on political expediency to determine our public relationship with Jesus Christ? Jesus tells them, I know you have very little power. That's not really what I'm looking at. You didn't deny my name. And you have patiently endured, and I've seen all of it. I've been sort of chewing through, slowly going through a book by a man by the name of Robert Serra. He is Cardinal Robert Serra. He's a Nigerian cardinal in the Catholic Church, and he is quite the dude. And you talk about a Christian church that is suffering. Um, you talk about a place like Nigeria this book of his is called The Day is Now Far Spent, and here's part of what he says about this topic. He says, in the early church, Christians were called the saints because their whole lives were imbued with the presence of Christ and with the lights of his gospel. They were in the minority, but they transformed the world. Are we called saints? Can we be called saints? Because our lives are imbued with, our lives are full of the light and the goodness and the power and the truth of the kingdom of God, even where the church finds itself in any kind of minority. He says that didn't matter sociologically or politically or economically. Still, they transformed the world. Such is the power of the kingdom of God. So in that conversation of, I know you don't have much power, but you've kept my name and you've, hold, you've held on to my word and you've patiently endured, he said, I know that there are those who are of the synagogue of Satan, those who call themselves Jews but who lie. Now, we're, we're, this happened before. We've seen this before, and it happened in the church of Smyrna. There's apparently a rather powerful Jewish community in both of those cities, Smyrna and in Philadelphia, who is making life hard on the Christian church. The Jewish community inside of the Roman world, most of their large cities, they had a certain kind of religious tolerance given to them because of their heritage and a few other things. But then you've got this group of weirdos called the Christians who weren't quite Jewish, but there were a lot of them were Jews. And 
We're no longer uh, members of the pagan cults of the Greeks and Romans, but the Christian church is full of Greeks and Romans, so nobody knows what to do with them, so they try to silence them and to get rid of them. So even often the Jewish community would do that to the Christian church as well. And then Jesus uses this really neat imagery. He said, don't worry, because they will bow the knee before you and learn, this is beautiful, that I've loved you. The keeping power of Jesus Christ for his church, the strength and security and stability that you and I have as children of God inside of the kingdom of God teaches the world that Jesus loves you. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful. So here's the irony. Here's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. He says, I know that there are those in your culture who want you to bow your knee to them. You didn't do it. So here's what's going to happen. They're going to bow their knee to you because of me. This is actually a, a, another direct reference to the book of Isaiah. It happens in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14. And it's not, again, because you and I have become special, incredible, amazing people, although many of you are special, amazing, incredible people. It's because our endurance reflects on the love of Jesus Christ. Our endurance reflects on the love of Jesus Christ. So God makes this promise to his church in verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, this verse accomplishes something really interesting. Reading through some scholars and commentators this week, uh, they would say things like this. This is probably the most commented on verse in the entire book of Revelation. Now, that's saying something. You read the rest of this book and you go, this is the verse <laughs> that most people come to and wrestle with and deal with and talk about. But let's make sure we understand the structure of this verse and listen to the language again. Because you have kept, you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you, you kept me, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, thinking first of all, like a Christian in the city of Philadelphia who first reads this letter, or someone who lives inside of this region, this is encouragement. Maybe there is something that's coming. Maybe there is some sort of, um, there's some other kind of upheaval that happens around the church and the, pol the politics of the city of Philadelphia, um, we actually don't know. We don't necessarily have record of the next thing that happens there. But whatever it is, Jesus has told this group of people, don't worry, you have kept my word and patient endurance, and I will keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come. But then Jesus places this promise and this letter in this language in the context of the rest of this book and the rest of this book is about the larger story 
of the church that endures and of the coming of Jesus Christ to put an end to all rebellion and sin and set up his kingdom forever and ever. So there's something meaningful to the Christians of Philadelphia in this passage as it is. But then there's something meaningful to the rest of us as well. In fact, Jesus even uses this language. From the whole earth, there is a trial coming on the whole earth. I will keep you from it to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, that phrasing, those who dwell on the earth, happens a few more times throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, and it always refers to those who persist in rebellion against God and who will be judged in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 begins to open up some really interesting biblical and interpretive and theological doors for us to understand the larger project that's going on here. This verse leads us into the doctrine of and the conversation about the rapture of the church. Now, this verse does not establish it. This isn't the only verse. This isn't the only place where this happens, but it leads us into this conversation to understand what Jesus is promising the larger church. So, because it leads us there, and because when we begin to talk about things like this, we start using words like the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ, some of us either just sort of decide, eh, I'm done, I'm not interested. Many of the rest of us go, I'm so totally confused, I don't even know what to do with this topic anymore, right? That's sort of what happens with these topics. So I want to spend a few minutes dealing not just with this passage and a few others in Revelation, but talking about the topics themselves, trying to give a little bit of clarity to the issue of the revelation, uh, excuse me, the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So let's give just a very quick definition. What do we mean when we talk about the rapture? The rapture is what happens when Christ calls his children to come and be with him. The rapture is what happens when Christ calls his children to come and be with him. The passage of Scripture that speaks to this most clearly, and in fact through the translation of this passage, gives us our word rapture because you know, if, if you go into your Bible study software or online and you, you Google the word rapture, it's not going to show up in Scripture. The word comes through the various translations of this passage of Scripture from 1 Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. This is part of what Paul describes as the comfort and encouragement of the church. He says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel. And with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. That Greek word means to be snatched away, to be snatched up. And we be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So this is a doctrine of encouragement, not a doctrine of fear. That's important because oftentimes this topic just creates anxiety or confusion or worry. And Paul says, that's not what's going on here. And we're going to unpack this some more. 
But this is a doctrine of encouragement for those who belong to Jesus Christ. Even if we die in this world, it is encouragement to all of us. So the rapture, that's basically what we speak of. The second coming is talked about differently in Scripture. So let's give a quick definition or description of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming is what happens when Christ returns to earth to finish the judgment of sin and set up his eternal kingdom. That language that we read in 1 Thessalonians said that Christ descends, but we're caught up to meet him in the air. Uh, the children of God hear the voice of the archangel and the trumpet. This is encouragement to us, and we are caught up. We're snatched up to be with Christ. When the second coming of Christ is spoken of, in fact, there are times in Scripture where he literally sets foot on earth. So it's different okay, than, the, than, than the rapture. But he sets foot on earth to finish the judgment of sin and to set up his eternal kingdom. Here's how Jesus talks about his second coming in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes on the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We notice very quickly the different responses to the two different events. Paul says when the rapture happens, he says this is encouragement, this is joy. When the second coming of Christ happens, there's shaking and there is change and there is mourning and there is weeping. Two different things for two different reasons. Why is this conversation about the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ, why is this important to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10? Because of this. It's the way chapter 3, verse 10 spoke of it. What God does with the church is different than what God does with sin and rebellion. God deals with his children differently than he deals with sin and rebellion and with the enemy. Chapter 3, verse 10 said, You have kept my word of patient endurance, and I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the rest of the earth and those who dwell in the earth. So what God does with his church is different than what God does with sin and rebellion. So here it is, and let's make sure we see this clearly. This is the way Scripture speaks of it. God's children are the object of his mercy. Sin and rebellion are the objects of his wrath. So the children of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you become the object of the mercy that he gives you. What well, the rest of Revelation and so much of the Old Testament leads us into is a story of the persistence of rebellion and the work of the enemy. That becomes the object of the wrath of God. So God deals with the church and, and rebellion differently. So I'm going to give you just a bunch of Scripture. We're going to read a lot of Scripture. I've given you a bunch, but we're going to read a bunch more. Some of you get excited about that. Some of you think, oh, come on, Pastor Phil. It's a thankless job, by the way. No, it's not. 
God's children are the object of his mercy. Sin and rebellion are the object of his wrath. John chapter 3, verse 36. Listen to this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's pretty straightforward. It's very much Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. We believe in the Son, and this is after John 3, 16, right? Whoever believes in the Son has life. You keep me and I will keep you. But those who don't, the wrath of God remains on them. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is upon whom and upon what the wrath of God falls. Not those who have fallen upon the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ, but those who in their unrighteousness deny or twist or change the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Upon them, wrath falls. And the rest of that passage in Romans chapter 1, 18 through the end, is all about what that looks like specifically. Sounds like America 2021. Romans chapter 2, verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There is no mystery here. Jesus says, this is who, this is what, becomes the object of wrath. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul admonishes us, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So there's the other half of that story. I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world and those who dwell upon the earth. Jesus, who saves us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 through 10. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So whether we are taken up while we are alive or we die in this life, we are always with Jesus Christ. All right, so there are a few more passages like that, but these are some of the clearest and some of the easiest for us to sort of grab hold of to begin with. Now, oftentimes, the doctrine of the rapture receives a lot of criticism, and right now there are some, some, some rather influential theological trends that are, that are criticizing this doctrine, so I think it's important for us to kind of understand it a little bit more. But one of the critiques of the doctrine of the rapture is that it just sounds like escapism. So what you're telling me, if I get this right, is that God is somehow going to get his church to escape from all the evil that's supposed to happen to him. We're only going to live blessed and happy lives. Now, sometimes people, when they teach the doctrine of the rapture, it does come off that way. It feels that way. It sounds that way. But that's not the biblical doctrine. Notice again, the rapture is intended to save the children of God from the wrath of God. The church is the object of his mercy, not the object of his wrath. The church, however, you know, here's where it all makes sense. So if you're just now waking up, this is the point. 
The church, however, is the object of the enemy's wrath. The church is sometimes the object of the world's wrath. So, of course, the church suffers. Of course, there's pain that comes into our lives, often just because people claim the name of Jesus Christ. This doctrine is not escapism. It has everything to do with what happens when God shows up to fix everything and judge sin. We're not saved from the wrath of the enemy. And what he wants to do, we're saved from the wrath of God. So get this. The church is sometimes the object of the wrath of this world, but it is not the object of God's wrath. So the rapture takes the church out of this world not to save it from the wrath of this world. We walk through this. In many parts of the church around the world, walk through this on a daily basis. But to save the church from the wrath of God because there's no escaping the wrath of God. And if you want to read about what that looks like, just keep going in the book of Revelation, chapter 4 to the end, and watch it unfold. So here's a quick guide to the difference between the rapture and the second coming. We've read some scripture, made hopefully some helpful clarifications. Here's some sort of comparison and contrast between the two. So, I've got some slides for you as well to help us understand. So, the rapture, the church is caught up with Jesus Christ. The second coming, the church comes back with Jesus Christ. Secondly, with the rapture, there is no judgment that happens on earth. That doesn't happen in the First Thessalonians passage. There is just encouragement and us meeting Christ. There's no judgment on the earth. The second coming, Christ comes to judge all the nations of the earth. The rapture, only Christians will see and hear Christ. That's what happened in the First Thessalonians passage. In the second coming, everyone, unbelievers, will see and hear the return of Jesus Christ. That's what spoke to us in Matthew chapter 24. The rapture, the timing is imminent and sudden. So this is something the church has been teaching and wrestling with and dealing with now for 2,000 years. So Paul told the Thessalonians, keep your eyes open. And if any of us are alive when this happens, this is what's going to happen. If any of us have already died, it is still encouragement for us. So the church still teaches that the rapture of Jesus Christ can come at any moment. It is his imminent return for his church. Does that sound like good news? The rapture, the timing is imminent and it will be sudden. Something interesting happens with the second coming when you study through that. The timing of the second coming actually has a clear, a clear chronology to it. This is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is how long it's going to take, and then Jesus is going to show up. So they're even spoken of differently in Scripture. The rapture, there is great joy and comfort. The second coming, there is great weeping and sorrow, the moment of final judgment has come. The rapture, God's promise to deliver the church from his wrath is fulfilled. And the second coming, God's promised wrath is fulfilled. Again, the Old Testament leads us to that moment. The book of Revelation builds to that moment. 
This kind of list, I've seen other pastors give this kind of list before, compare and contrast, but then uh, it's adapted from this book called The Rapture Question by Dr. John Walford. So to understand all of this, why is this such a big deal? Because the promise that Jesus gives to the church at Philadelphia fits into the larger context of what he's speaking of in this letter and in this book of the promise of the church in the kingdom of God, of our place, our security, our strength in the kingdom of God. It fits into this larger story. You've kept my word of patience and endurance, so now I will keep you. So Jesus tells this church, and Jesus has said this now a couple times in these letters. Friends, we need to hear it. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am coming soon. So hold fast. Hang on tight to what you have, is how the NIV puts it, so that no one may seize your crown. I am coming soon. There's the imminence, the soonness, the suddenness of the rapture. And this is the pastoral call again. We've heard this from the heart of Christ several times. I need you to hear this, church. I'm coming back soon, so hang on. Hang on to what I've given you. Hang on to my word. Those who have denied the truth become objects of wrath. Those who hang on to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ are objects of the mercy of Jesus Christ. So hold on to it so that no one may seize your crown. What an interesting image for Christ to throw into this context as he speaks to the church in Philadelphia. God will give his children a crown. It's this cool image in Scripture. And it means several things as it makes its way to this point in Scripture. It often means the winning of a race. And the image of winning a race in the first century Olympics shows up with the Apostle Paul. You receive this crown for winning a race. So it means you've, you've, you've won, you've made it, you've, you've crossed the finish line. And so you receive this crown of victory. It's a crown that means that you are a child of the king. You are a part of the royal household, the king who rules over all of creation and all of history, who holds all of the universe in his hands, who knows the name of every single star and counts every hair on your head. You have his crown on your head. You belong to his family. You are his child. There's even the promise in Scripture of ruling and reigning with Christ. We're part of the royal family And there's a certain kind of authority that's delegated to us because of that. And it's spoken of in terms of being given a crown. So Jesus says, hang on to it so that no one else can seize that crown. It's yours. Listen to how the disciple James puts it in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial. So we endure. We are given a crown. And then something incredible happens. 
we endure, we're given a crown. And then when we turn around and we finally see Jesus, you know what we do with that crown? We take it off. We lay it at his feet. It's all him. It's all him. If you keep reading in Revelation chapter 4, the next thing that happens in the next two chapters, 4 and 5, is the Apostle John is being given the the vision of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. He's being given these letters in chapters 2 and 3. And then he's taken into the very presence of God Almighty. And we have another throne room scene. And for two chapters, uh, John the Revelator is trying to describe everything that he sees and everything that he hears. And he sees these angelic beings. And he sees multitudes upon multitudes. And he sees these creatures that he calls the 24 elders, which are most likely a representation of the people of God around the throne of God. And here's part of what he sees. Revelation 4, verses 9 through 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord in God. To receive glory and honor and power, you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Why are you given a crown? So that you can stand before the presence of God Almighty and give it right back. Endure. Hang on to what you have. See that no one takes your crown from you because I want it back. And I will take it back when you are with me for the rest of eternity face to face. (laughs) And to the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never will he go out of it. And I will write on him and it's just this, this, um, this piling of repetition. I will write on him the name of my God, the, new, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. You can read that at the end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And listen to what the Spirit has to say to the church. These are all promises to the people of God about their place that is secure now and forever in the kingdom of God. He says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God, a permanent feature in the presence of God Almighty, a permanent feature of worship and adoration to God. One of my favorite images of the church in the New Testament comes from its first Timothy chapter 3 Paul says the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth and Jesus says you endure and you are with me and you will forever stand as this pillar in my presence and you will never go out of it this is an image of security for the Christians in Philadelphia here's where one of these points where the history of the city itself lays just underneath what Jesus is actually saying to this church. The city of Philadelphia 
was built right next to a volcano. That's always trouble when you do that, by the way. And so the city had suffered all kinds of problems and it suffered all kinds of earthquakes. And so over the decades, as that city had been built and had grown, people discovered it was unsafe to live inside the city, so they had moved outside of the city and villages got built and they would ranch and they would farm outside of the city. So the city grew outside of the walls instead of inside of the walls because it was unsafe. So Jesus tells these Christians, you're safe here. You will forever be safe in my presence. And I will write on him the name of my God. This is the eternal mark that I belong to my God. It's an image that's actually used several times in Scripture. Old Testament Scripture speaks of actually folding up passages of Scripture and binding them to your forehead as a symbol of, this is my God, this is what is ever before me. I am constantly reminded of the name and the power and the presence of my God, and I will speak of my God. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God tells an angel, I need you to go to the city of Jerusalem. I need you to put a mark on the foreheads of the faithful because when judgment comes, I'm going to pass over those. So it's protection from the judgment of God in Ezekiel chapter 9. You skip over to Revelation chapter 7, and before judgment begins to fall, God says, hang on just a second. I want my angels to go and find those who belong to me and write my name on their foreheads, and then judgment will fall. Again, it's protection from the judgment of God as it comes. It is this eternal mark that you've become an object of the mercy and the power and the goodness of God. You are forever his. You are safe here for all of eternity. And like we have seen before with these letters, I just love this. You are known by name, by God Almighty. So the enduring church here is promised a crown, a pillar, and a name. We are given life and authority, and we lay it down at the feet of our King. We become a permanent fixture in the presence of the glory and the majesty of our God. And we are saved from judgment because of Jesus Christ. And we are known by God for all of eternity. Let's be encouraged by these words.